0: One of the summers when I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to do the 30-day silent retreat, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which is kind of like this um, thing you may have heard some people do. It's uh, like priests or or religious, but also lay people. Uh, The the vision of St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, was that this was a way for all of us to grow in holiness, but it sounds so extreme, 30 days in silence, 30 days in prayer uh, and spiritual direction. It's hard to find 30 days in a row where you can, like, take time off or, or even the willingness to, to go be with the Lord so exclusively. Um, it can be very intimidating. Um, I thought maybe it would be boring. But uh, I had this opportunity. I had this summer, and I asked my formators if, if I could do it, and they said yes. And it was one of the greatest gifts of, of my time in seminary. And uh, to this day, I would love to do it again if God ever gives me the, the chance. I was not bored, even for a moment. Um, but you find that in that silence uh, you're not just by yourself all the time you go to mass and stuff and you pray with the other people on retreat and you also have a spiritual director you speak to once, once a day for about an hour so you're not like totally going nuts with your own thoughts um, but throughout the day it, there is a lot, of, a lot going on in your heart, a lot going on in your mind um, that without the distractions of everyday life and the noise you're, you're forced to reckon with them Um, and I found like midway through the retreat that I had a good routine going. Like I would get up, do my first holy hour, um, you know, drink my coffee, eat breakfast. Then I'd go, you know, uh, relax for a little bit, maybe take a nap. Then I'd have mass and then another holy hour and lunch. And then I'd go work out in the afternoon and et cetera. And I just had like this nice routine. It actually felt really good. And I was like, man, I could do this forever. (laughs) I'm an introvert anyway. Um, and one day in prayer, I just, uh, I kind of like heard this voice say, We always do what you want to do. And uh, that really struck me because it was like I was just, I'd kind of made this retreat into my own cozy little vacation, you know, rather than actually encountering this person, God, who might have something he wants me to do or wants to do with me, you know. And so it was a point of conversion, and I started to open myself up to be a little bit less egotistical about uh, what I wanted out of the retreat and to start really looking to God and be like, what do you want for me in this retreat? But I I think the pendulum swung the other way because as soon as I, as I opened up to that, I was like, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? Okay, what do you want me to do now? How about now? You know, and it was just like, should I go, uh, um, this way or that way? Should I sit here for 20 minutes or 21 minutes? And, um, it started to become this neurotic kind of scrupulous thing, um, and I realized, like, this is kind of an insult to God. Like, he doesn't, this is not what he prefers. <laughs> uh, what friend would you want to be around that was like, okay, I want to do this exact thing for this exact amount of time, and then I want you to do this, and, and just constantly be demanding of us and not to give us the freedom to, like, actually have a relationship, have a friendship. Um, I realized that it was, I was projecting onto God this image that was not him, of this control freak, of this micromanager, um, so what is the happy medium? What is, what is the place of actual freedom and relationship? Um, that's a hard place to be, and so I think we prefer one or the other, either like it's all me making all my decisions or God, you know, just take away my freedom. Remember, that was a common conversation in the seminary with men who were thinking about whether or not they really wanted to be a priest. They would often say something like, and I've said it myself, I'm sure, God, just tell me what you want and I'll do it. You know, maybe you've had that thought and trying to discern like what, what, even small decisions, like just tell me what to do and I'll do it. In other words, I don't want to choose. Take away my freedom. Make me a slave. Because that's safer. It's easier than actually living in the mystery of the give and take of a relationship between free subjects, free persons, which is what God wants for us with him and with each other. There's this insistence in the Bible from the time well, of the very beginning with Adam and Eve, but especially we see it in the story of the Exodus, um, which we read through in Lent, that God insists that we are free, that we do not be slaves. And, of course, the Egyptian slavery of the Hebrew Israelites, it's so obviously bad. Pharaoh is oppressing them. Their lives are miserable. The whole cruel fate of slaves, it says, that's all they have to endure. And God sees their misery and sends Moses to set them free. But in the whole process of getting set free, things are hard. Pharaoh gets mad at them, their, their, their fate gets even worse. They start to resent Moses, who's come to liberate them. Even when they get out into the desert, they complain that they're thirsty, they're hungry, that food isn't good enough. I wish we were back in Egypt where we at least we had flesh pots. If you read the whole Exodus story, there's not just a resistance of Pharaoh and the Egyptians who have enslaved them, but the slaves themselves suspect that maybe slavery is better. Maybe it's safer, maybe my needs will be met more there than in this place of uncertainty and freedom that requires me to just follow and to trust so much. Um, the gospel today, Jesus is—he uh, uses this parable of the, the fig tree that bears no fruit and giving the tree another chance. It's been three years. It hasn't borne any fruit. Should we just cut it down? What's the point of it sucking up all the nutrients out of the soil just to make leaves and no fruit? Um, and the gardener says, give it another year. I'll fertilize it. I'll, I'll, I'll dig around it, and, and maybe it'll bear fruit in the future. I think there's this connection between uh, freedom and fruitfulness. Like John Paul II talks about this with the theology of the body in, in marriage. Authentic love, authentic marital love, is to be free and fruitful, but also total and faithful. These are the four marks of authentic love that is the love of God. It's always total, faithful, free, and fruitful. And so I can't coerce someone to love me. Like when a priest actually witnesses a marriage, he says, have you come here freely and without coercion? And both parties have to say, we have. Because if if you're forced to get married, it's not real love. If you're forced to love this person, it can't be love. And then the priest says, will you accept children lovingly from God? And they have to say, we do, we will. Meaning we are open to this love, not just being about us too and our needs, but open to this newness of life. And then they commit themselves to each other <clears throat> completely till death. They, they turn toward each other and they make this, this promise to one another um, that I am yours completely forever. I trust myself to you. And that's the freedom that bears fruit. And that's what God wants for us. And if we're not bearing fruit, if we're, we're choked off, if we're, we're not feeling this um, abundance, life begetting life, there's probably some... Um, way that our freedom is compromised, that God wants us to be more free. And where does that freedom come from? It comes from trust. It's like the spouses entrusting themselves to each other forever. <clears throat> we trust ourselves to God. The, Egyptian, the Israelites trust themselves to God's leading, leading them through the desert, <clears throat> through this place of uncertainty, into the land that's wide and expansive and filled with milk and honey, he says. I want you to be free, not in chains, not in this narrow life that is not life, but in the freedom of the the sons and daughters of God. So how is this accomplished? That's the the mystery. How do I trust more? It's kind of a catch-22. You trust more by trusting more. You know, there's no way to learn trust except by trusting. I remember it took me a while to, to learn how to swim because I was so afraid of the deep end. I just didn't want to go there. I was like, how... How are you floating? Like, I just didn't believe it was possible. And then I remember vividly one day at um, an aunt and uncle's house, they had a pool. um, I just went over there, into the deep end, and I realized I could swim. I could probably swim for a while before I ever actually did, but I just didn't trust myself, the pool, the water, physics, that it was going to work. But it does. And so then I trusted more and I wanted to swim more and it was like fun all of a sudden, I felt free. But as long as I was clinging to the side of the pool or just walking around in the shallow end, I was never going to have that freedom. <clears throat> and so that's the, the mystery of, of growth and freedom is that if we're slaves, we prefer slavery. It's the most familiar thing and, and we're afraid of really branching out and opening up ourselves to the uncertainty of, of real authentic freedom. And this—it's it's, significant—and I'll end with this: that Moses, when he encounters God, Yahweh, I am who am, this God who insists on his freedom, who is the source of everything that exists, of all life, all being—and he sees the misery and the slavery of his people—and he wants to set them free—that he manifests himself in this weird symbol of the burning bush. You've probably seen that, like in the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, this weird thing—that's like that's how God first revealed Himself. To to Moses, was this burning bush? But the thing about the bush that's amazing to Moses is not that it's on fire, but that it's not consumed. He's walking around with the flocks of his father in law Jethro, and he's like, Huh, burning bush, but the bush isn't burning up, it's not consumed. And this is this primordial symbol of Christ because the bush is us, is our humanity, and the fire is the fire of God and his love, his divinity. And the two are perfectly in union, but they don't destroy each other. They don't compete with each other. So the burning bush we we look at, we we see Jesus on the cross, the man on the cross, is utterly human, utterly mortal, even weak. He's fallen three times on his way to this cross, and he's dying, his, his head sagging, and yet he's totally free. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I will take it up again. No greater love than this exists than to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's totally free, and yet nailed to a cross. It's this total paradox. His obedience to the Father comes from trust in the Father, that he can go there, he can go into a place where he is both choosing it, but also it's the Father's will. And that place of of total freedom is, in a way, Jesus. That's the only place that exists, is in his body which is the Church, and especially in the Eucharist. So we can come here, even if we don't fully trust, even if we feel compromised in our freedom, even if it's like, Lord, I don't even want to give you chocolate this Lent. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to trust you at all, because I don't know that I I'm, I'm like, can trust you, that, that you will really let me be totally free and provide for me and everything. But you can come here and receive Jesus, who does trust for you and in you and with you, the Father. And to just stand before their altar, before you receive Holy Communion, before you receive the life of Jesus in you, to say, Lord, I'm here free, without coercion. I've chosen to be here. Mysteriously, in your will, you've given me the grace to get up this morning, to come to Mass, but I choose it. I am free, and I trust you. Now, give me the trust to trust you even more.